Hi, folks. Welcome to uh, Equip. We're glad that you are here. So, got a couple of people coming in from the back, getting settled in here in person. So, let me start us uh, today in prayer, and I'll introduce our subject for us. So, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for those uh, that have gathered with us to study your word today, for the ones who are here in person, for the others watching with us online or maybe listening to this uh, on their commute into work tomorrow or uh, some other time uh, in the week. We, uh, we're grateful, God, that we uh, have the ability to, to share this uh, in that way. Would you uh, bless our time together, we pray. Let it be glorifying to you. Uh, God, would you help this discussion today be sanctifying for both uh, us as individuals, but also as a congregation, um, that, that we would be willing to ask hard questions and uh, look, look for uh, paths forward to, as, as we continue to strive uh, to be the kind of church that you would have us to be. So would you instruct us from your word, we pray now, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we kind of hit the middle point of our uh, series in biblical worldview and transition towards thinking about specific subjects. And uh, last week was the subject of life. And I'm going to follow, um, I, I said this last week, but I, I'm going to try my best in most of these weeks between now and Easter to follow a very similar pattern. Um, from one subject to the next, because I think these are kind of the big blocks that I want to put into place, and there are going to be some weeks that I make comments um, or, or have some minor things to say that don't necessarily fit into one of these categories. But uh, I thought it was helpful last week to kind of examine how we got to where we are historically with, with the worldview of the certain subject, uh, where we are now, what does the Bible teach about that subject, um, how does the gospel in how does the gospel kind of interact with that issue, and then ultimately, what should the church's actions be? So we saw that as it related to life last week, and the the subject that we're going to consider this week is the subject of race and racism. Um, what is uh, the what should a biblical worldview tell us about um, race and uh, both uh, race within a we could say within an American context, but we're not going to only think about it from, from an American lens, but race from a historical as well as biblical context. Uh, and then how, how should the church um, view racism, both um, overt racism that still exists in some people's hearts today, uh, as well as the effects, the lingering effects of systemic racism that existed uh, in our culture and, and it existed in other cultures as well. So we're going to ask some of those questions today and, and really try to see what, what the Bible would want us to do. So um, I want to start, as I did last week, with kind of a historical um, survey. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's helpful for us um, to, at least in our own culture, go back. Actually, a couple of people this last week interacted some with me on how we got to where we were, where we are with, um, the, with the subject of life. And so it, it seems like that was at least somewhat helpful to see that progression uh, from the early 1900s through now the early part of the 21st century and uh, how we kind of got to this, you know, abortion on demand culture. 
Um, race, is a, race is a completely different subject. Um, while life is one of those that has certainly abortion is one that things have progressively gotten worse over the last 100 years, you can make a great argument, and I'm going to do so, um, that issues of race have gotten better. Now, before I get to how they've gotten better, I want to make sure we make something clear. When I say things have gotten better, what I'd want us to fight against is the temptation to say thing, things are completely solved, that, that somehow better is finished. And, and I, I personally don't feel that way as I look at um, the issue of race and conflict between race and, and um, uh, the, particularly the subject of, of racism with, within people's um, hearts and minds that maybe they don't express as loudly as they used to, but still may linger there. And then also, how do we think about the effects of racism that, that existed uh, prior to our generation or to this time, maybe? And so I'm, I'm of the opinion that there's still some room to grow. I think there's room to grow in my heart. I'm hoping you would say uh, maybe there's room to grow in your heart. And I certainly think there's room to grow in the church, not just Nanzone River Baptist Church, but the church as, as a whole, that, that there are still good questions that we can ask. There's still a lot of uh, work to be done. And I think kind of a historical survey will help us see that. Um, so let's just go back. When, when we went back with the subject of abortion, we just went back to the early part of the 1900s. Um, but for this, you really have to go back to before America even existed to, to think about the long-seated issues of race and racism that existed in the United States. And so slavery, obviously, is kind of this, uh, the, the pinnacle of racism, right? To think that one person should be completely subject to another uh, and could be, because of their race, owned by another person, uh, at least in our culture has, has existed from the early part of the 1600s. I was reading something recently. If you're from this area, you probably knew this. I didn't necessarily know this, but that the slave trade actually began right, I mean, right up here. It was what, in Hampton, Virginia, uh, in, in um, the early 1600s, the, the first person, there was already slavery that existed in the United States, but that was like the first time a slave ship uh, entered these shores. And that, that lasted for about 250 years it was lasted from the early 1600s to 1865 with the enactment of the 13th Amendment, obviously following um, the, the Civil War. And so th that is a long time. I mean, think about it, 250 years. That is a long time that at least a portion of our nation believed that because of someone's race, they could be owned and sold and families could be broken up and, and simply because someone was of another uh, race. Slavery, unfortunately, in the American church, particularly the American church in the South, was defended by many churches. You could say most, if not all, churches in the South. Um, churches in England really led the way. Last week I talked about how um, Europe, or two weeks ago, I talked about how, how Europe often leads the way for us in bad ways. Europe led the way for us in a good way with, with, um, uh, with this, uh, particularly within um, uh, 
churches in England, you began to see a rejection of uh, slavery. You had people working in England uh, to, to rid that nation of the slave trade and that not just England itself, but the United Kingdom uh, of the slave trade long before that began to be um, thought of here in the United States. And so uh, we... Um, so we're grateful for that movement, and ultimately that, that catches on here. But for the most part, churches, and when we live in Virginia, so let's just call it what it is, for the most part, churches in the 16, 17, 1800s in Virginia would have defended the act of owning slaves. They would have primarily done so with uh, particularly chattel slavery and, and, and the ability to take war the products of war, because this is where slaves were coming from. They were being captured as products of war in Africa, shipped over here. I mean, this was people stealing, which the Bible says clearly is a sin. Uh, but it was justified in churches. It just became a way of life. Uh, some, some pastors would use Genesis 4, and I actually talked about both of these in our series in Genesis. Some pastors would use Genesis 4, talking about how Cain was marked as a, kind of this outcast, and they would twist that to somehow make that to seem like because of the color of his skin that that was a mark. Uh, the primary one, though, was Genesis chapter 9, which we call the, the curse of Ham, when even though it's not actually Ham that Noah curses, it's his son Canaan, and he talks about how Canaan uh, would be cursed and would serve his brothers. And uh, Canaan, if we go to, if we go there in, in you know, Genesis 9 and 10, we, we see those nations spread out. Remember the table of nations that we looked at several months ago in our series in Genesis? And, and most of where Canaan spreads out is portions of the Middle East and, and Africa. And so they use that to say, hey, th these, these ethnic people groups were designed by God to be to be servants. Now, folks, I don't, I think anybody now should hear that and think that is a ridiculous understanding of scripture because it is. Um, there's a, there's a really clear, uh, meaning for both, uh, the mark that God puts on Cain and for the curse that God gives to Cain and Ham's son, Noah's grandson. Um, and, and both of them really speak about the difference between obedience and faith and this line of faith which we gave so much attention to in those first 11 chapters of Genesis, this line of faith that God was preserving until he begins to work in a new way in the life of Abraham. But you saw a lot of American pulpits uh, in, the, in the 15th, 16th, 17th century uh, espousing this kind of doctrine in order to justify uh, the slave trade and, and the continual owning of slaves in the United States. Now, 1865, slavery becomes illegal uh, in the United States. And the, the wheels of justice turn slowly in America. I mean, we see that most of the time anyway. It takes America a little while. We have a very slow system, um, a slow legal system. Uh, it wasn't until 1869, so what's that, uh, 30, a little over 30 years later, um, before the Supreme Court finally had to step in and determine whether uh, we were going to have institutionalized racism in the United States or not post-slavery. We obviously had it during slavery, but post-slavery we were going to have it, unfortunately. Um, in, uh, you, you probably learned this in like eighth grade, right? But in a Supreme Court decision called Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court uh, legalized segregation. And what legalized segregation was is simply the institutionalization of, of 
racism. Uh, it's where we get the term separate but equal from. And if you know anything about the history of that period, you would know it was definitely separate, but it was certainly not equal. And uh, that existed for a long time. Uh, it was decades that that was the law of the land, that uh, it was completely legal uh, to say this is a whites-only drinking fountain, this is a whites-only bus, this is a black-only school, um, and never the two shall meet. And they were that that was that was codified in laws both in the North and the South. I don't want to paint this as being racism as specifically or strictly a Southern thing. Uh, there were certainly uh, still link, while the North was not. Uh, while the North did not have slaves, um, the North in many ways still participated in the Jim Crow era, which is really what we saw after, eight, after the late 1800s for the first uh, half or more of the 1900s. Uh, America was under what was really known as far as race is concerned was, was Jim Crow. It was, a, it was an era where uh, blacks in the United States were free uh, but were still very limited in uh, what they were able to do. They were limited in their uh, ability to seek a job, to get an education. They were limited in their ability to borrow money, to open a business. They were limited to the houses they could live in, the places that they could live, uh, things that were called redlining laws uh, in the mid-1900s were very, very popular, and it actually made it illegal for real estate agents to even show a house in certain neighborhoods to someone who was not white. Uh, and that existed for a long time in the United States. Uh, it, while you could say everyone's free, no one is a slave, everyone is equal, it certainly was not, and it promoted, ultimately promoted an inequality of, of justice um, d during that time. Nearly all churches during the 1900s, mid-1900s, remained segregated, and many of them misused scripture to promote segregation within uh, the segregation of congregations. Now, those, those previous passages, me talking about Genesis 4 and Genesis 9, that fell out of favor. Um, after slavery, you did not see a lot of that in the 1900s, although there are still... And listen, if you really wanted to go find someone, this is why I say racism isn't dead... If you wanted to go find someone that still believed that today, you could. I mean, there, there are people that still espouse this stuff on the internet. It's, it's not actually hard to find at all. Um, but the, what arose during the Jim Crow era of the 1900s uh, within churches was no longer, it, it really mirrored what was happening in culture, right? It wasn't one is... Uh, subservient to the other, right? That one is the ruling class and one is the slave or servant class. It was just the idea of, again, separate with the illusion of equal. And so what you would see a lot of uh, Christian churches teach, for instance, uh, is a verse like 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now we know... I hope you do. I hope you, you would read 2 Corinthians 6 and not just that verse, but the entire paragraph. And you would say, that's, Paul is specifically addressing the relationship that Christians should have with, with non-Christians and how we need to really be careful to allow non-Christians to um, influence the way that we think and the way that we act and the way that we 
um, operate, right? Well, that's true. I'm not denying that that's scripturally true, but that, that passage has nothing to do with race whatsoever. And so for churches to continue to defend segregation of the pews, not just segregation of business and education and transportation, but segregation of the pews based off of something like that, and that wasn't the only place that you would go, um, is, it, was, it was obviously twisting scripture uh, based off of... Um, based off of racist beliefs. And so that dominates the 1900s until we get to the second half of the 1900s where uh, you begin to see a lot of things happen. And again, it doesn't happen overnight, but a lot of things start happening pretty quickly. Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, desegregate schools. Um, and even that doesn't desegregate schools overnight, but it begins the process of school desegregation. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, the, the civil rights movement, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., like the, all of this stuff kind of hits the scene in the 1960s and uh, public services become um, desegregated. It's not until 1968 that you get the Fair Housing Act where things like red line laws, which existed after 1968, uh, but federally they became illegal and, and you, you couldn't, it, you know, a realtor should not be able to say, sorry, you can't look in this neighborhood because you're uh, because you're not white. Um, but all of that happens in the 1950s and the 1960s. And we get to the 1970s and 80s. And uh, it, listen, r racism continues. Now, again, things get better. It's not slavery anymore. It's not separate being equal anymore. Th things are getting better. But um, we contributed, the, the church in general, the majority church contributed to this through things like white flight, creation of our own schools, uh, many churches maintain segregation long after public desegregation. So a year before, so I've been in ministry 22 years. I've been full-time ministry 20, 19 years, right at almost 20 years. And in 2002, I was about to, I was going to my first uh, full-time church. We were, I was still in college. I was about to graduate college. Christine and I had just gotten married. I was about to go. To, I'd been a, little, a youth director at a, little, a church part-time, and this church was hiring me to be their full-time youth pastor. And Man, we were pumped. I was excited, getting married, graduating college, getting a full-time job. And um, I sat down and had a conversation. I had several conversations, and I'm still, um, still in communication with this pastor. I think the world of him. And I remember asking that question about this church. Now, this was, this was suburban, right on the edge of rural Alabama, folks, okay? And so I, I just asked the question, what's this church's thoughts on, on race? I mean, this was, this was a completely white church at the time. And um, I, I can remember Greg telling me, he said, well, we actually had, we actually had to have that conversation just this last year as... Um, some, as a, the, the first, and this church is, had existed at that point for over 50 years. He said the, the first black person to ever come to this church on Sunday morning came last year. And uh, a family, at least one family in the church got angry and actually sought to have the person removed from the church. Now we're in the 2000s, okay? And Greg, and he told me, now I'm young, I'm impressed when I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, huh, I'm not really thrilled about this. But he says, well, look, our deacons met that night. And we actually went and did church discipline on the, on the family that, that said that the person should, should have been removed. We're going to be a church that anyone can come to. 
Now, that, that says two things. Number one, it says it was getting better, right? But that's not a story from 1962. That's a story from 2002, right? That's still a story that's happening today. Um, we, we removed fellowship from a church in the Southern Baptist Convention two years ago, two years ago, because they refused to allow African-Americans in their church. So for us to say things just keep getting better, don't they? And, and they're better. They're better. But we've, got, we've still got some ways to go. Now we've entered, and I'm going to use a term that I've used a lot over the last several weeks, post-modernity, right? We've entered the post-modern era. And everyone now over the last, let's call it, I don't know, 15 years or so, is hyper aware of, of race and racism. I mean, it, it, is, it is a buzzword now, right? It's been highly politicized since the civil rights movement. I, I wasn't alive during the civil rights movement. All I have is, is um, historical record on this, right? But, but it, it was highly politicized coming out of that. Um, and the church... Unfortunately, in the main, the white church chose a side which was the wrong side to choose. And we've got a lot of work to make up from that. Then the, our culture has gone, has looked at race now in some, some ways that we could say are uh, not healthy. And so there are some conversations just over the last several years within postmodern thought that the church is, is walking this balancing act saying we completely reject the idea of racism. Racism is sin. We should, you know, we should not fellowship with churches that, that, that have racism. We should be open to everybody. Not only open to everybody, we should be welcoming and encouraging towards people coming to our church. We should look for ways uh, to be as multi-ethnic as possible. Uh, and yet the continued progression in our culture towards things, and I'm going to use some words here, you may not know what they mean, things like critical race theory, uh, intersectionality. These are non-biblical ideas in the main, non-biblical ideas that think they can solve conflict by basically assigning blame, right? And here's what we know. The only way to solve conflicts with the gospel of Jesus so we should, the church needs to be really careful that we don't get sucked down some holes, okay, uh, towards uh, new ways of thinking about race. Not that there's not some, some beneficial thoughts or ideas that come out of secular understanding, and there are, and we've talked about that as a part of worldview. But the church is in an interesting place right now where we've got to be really clear with what we believe about the Bible, really clear with what we want to do as far as addressing racism in our own churches and addressing racism within our culture, while also not giving ourselves over to something that's wholly unbiblical. So it's, it's actually an interesting time in the church with this subject because, because we're, we're starting to see this, this pull towards some things that we, we really don't want to be pulled to, uh, but we also don't want to fall back into, well, let's just resegregate Sunday morning. We've got to keep doing work uh, without giving, giving ourselves over to some kind of false teaching. So things have gotten better, but we're not there yet. And I would hope you would look at our culture and you would say, things have certainly gotten better, um, but there are still ways that we can improve. There was a church that can improve. There's ways our culture can improve um, towards continuing 
uh, the fight for equality for uh, all ethnic, all people of all ethnic backgrounds in America. So what does the Bible teach concerning racism? I'm going to get several points here. First, all people are created in the image of God, and the scriptures attribute ethnicity to the work of the Lord. Now, just as we said with the subject of abortion last week, we've got to begin with the teaching of uh, Imago Dei, the image of God, that, that tiny uh, embryo within the mother's womb is human. And the same must be said and must be believed about people from all ethnic backgrounds. Now, I do think it's important for us to just stop for a second and recognize what the church actually teaches as it relates to race, the, the, or what the Bible teaches relates to race. The Bible doesn't really mention the term race. Race isn't a Bible term. It doesn't make it a bad term, okay? The Bible doesn't mention air conditioning, but we're glad the heat's on right now, okay? So it, just because something's not in the Bible doesn't mean it's unbiblical. Um, what the Bible does actually has a whole lot more nuance as it relates to this subject than we do. See, when we think about race, we really only have like five categories, right? You got white people, you got black people, you have brown people, you have Asian people, and maybe within that you got a couple of subcategories, right? That's, that's kind of our, that's kind of how we, we think about race. If, we, if we're, we're thinking why, and particularly in America, we're like, it's white, it's brown, it's black, and then there, there's a few people that came from, you know, Asia around us. And, and we, we kind of determine, we just in our minds set it up in those ways. The Bible, though, has far more categories than that. The Bible doesn't talk about skin color. The Bible talks about ethnicity. And the Bible talks about ethnicity a lot. It talks about ethnic groups a lot. In Acts 17, 26, we read, and he made from one man every nation of mankind. That word nation is, is word ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnic group from, Okay. And he made from one, one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. So, and where, does we, where do we see God do this? So this is, right, this is in Acts. So this is the New Testament church thinking about um, the gospel spreading out to the nations. But what's being referred here in Acts 17 is what God does post-flood right, with the, the story of the Tower of Babel, where God begins to spread the people out on the face of the earth, and from that spreading out is, comes the nations of the world. It's that table of nations, right? So all people, regardless of what ethnic group they're in, and to use our vernacular, regardless of what race they are, is equally created in the image of God, and they are who they are because God made them that way. Ethnicity is a work of God. Nations, na people, groups, languages, this is something that God has done. And so if it's something God has done, it's not something we need to see as a negative thing. This is one of the problems that arose in the uh, late 20th century, 80s and 90s, is the church wanted to deal with racism by just saying, let's all be colorblind. Let's act like race isn't a thing. Let's act like ethnicity isn't a thing. And that actually did a lot of damage because what we wanted to, what we tried to do was just, well, let me, I'm going to use a term here. I don't, it was to whitewash everything, just to, just to say it doesn't matter, right? Well, 
from a gospel standpoint, it, it doesn't matter. But for God, who established the ethnic peoples of the world, there's a reason that he did this. And if we attribute it to the work of God, then we don't need to go try to erase it. We need to recognize that people come from different places. And they have different influences. And if we really spread out around the world, they have different languages and different cultures. And even within America, there are these subsets of of ethnic groups that, that exist, and, and that's, it, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's actually a good thing that, that God has made these peoples, just like God made each one of us different and unique, God made these ethnic groups different and unique. So we don't need to pretend that that doesn't exist. We need to recognize that it's a work of God that they do exist. Number two, the biblical world was very multi-ethnic with many different people groups used by God in redemptive history. When you read the Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament, well, let's just think about it in two ways. When you read the Old Testament, we're, we're always dealing with the Canaanites this and the Moabites this and the Israelites this and the Egyptians, that, right? It is, it is full of ethnic diversity. And the good guys aren't always the Israelites. Have you noticed that? Like the, very often the Israelites are, are the bad guys in the, in the story. No, not always, but they're, they're often being portrayed as the ones who aren't listening to God. And, and I mean, we, we've seen this with uh, Abimelech having to correct both Abraham and Isaac, right? Someone who was not of the house of Abraham, who doing what was right when Abraham and Isaac should have been the ones uh, do, doing what was right. So you've got, you've got this vast multi-ethnic um, uh, landscape in the biblical world in the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament and it starts off very uh, Israelite-centric. But then by the time you get to the end of Acts, it's on three different continents. The, the, the gospel has spread in multiple languages thanks to, you know, in God's sovereignty, the Roman Empire and the ability for the gospel to travel via ship and road to all of these places uh, in just a matter of a few decades. So both Old and New Testament, very multi-ethnic, and God uses those people. In Exodus 12, and you, this, this gets mentioned so quickly during the Exodus that you can miss it, okay? Exodus 12, verses 37 and 38. So they've, the, it, finally all the plagues are done, and Pharaoh's like, leave, Okay? And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, beside women and children. So there's at least a million people, right? And then you get to 30 at verse 38, and you can miss it if you don't hear it. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now, when you read a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, flocks and herds, you may think that the mixed multitude is actually the livestock, flocks and herds. It's not. You know who the mixed multitude is? Multiple ethnic groups who were also slaves in Egypt. That when, when the slaves in Egypt were freed, the slaves in Egypt were freed. And you had this, you had this large contingency of people that get caught up in this and end up going with them on the, on the exodus. So the exodus wasn't just direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to 
right? The 12 tribes of Israel. You end up with all of these other people believing in that same, participating in the Exodus, intermarrying, being a part of it. And you know what ends up happening? Moses even marries one of these people. So that's their third thing. Inter-ethnic marriages between those of like faith are affirmed in the scriptures. In Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron spoke about Moses. Miriam and Aaron, this is um, Moses' brother and sister, spoke against Moses because the Cushite woman whom he had married. Now, the Cushites were from the northern horn of Africa, modern-day Ethiopia, all right? So Moses married a black woman, and she was Cushite, and Miriam and Aaron didn't like it. And they actually spoke up about it. And watch who comes to Moses' defense in verse 6. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And behold the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So we have, we have a, a multi-ethnic marriage take place as this multi-ethnic group of slaves freed from Egypt go towards the promised land. And so for us to think for one moment that somehow Israel, right, descendants of Abraham, is, is, is the only story that's being told in the Old Testament and then transposing that somehow into majority culture America, which was done for centuries, is very deadly to the church and destructive towards people. Number four, the church, certainly universal and hopefully local, is a unified body from various ethnicities. When Paul talks about ethnic groups in his letter to the church at Colossae says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, and slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, why would he mention those people? He mentioned those people because they're all there. So there's at least Greeks that are there. There's Jews that are there. There was a group of people that were kind of neither. They weren't Greeks. They're considered barbarians, right? Scythians, this is another ethnic group. And then he also addresses slave and free, those who are indentured in their servanthood and those who are not. And he says, we're all in Christ. So the church, both certainly universal, right? We, we should all be able to admit that the universal church is uh, a a the body of Christ that is certainly made up of various ethnicities. But hopefully, that's also true about the local church. And I'm going to talk about, I'm going to come back to this subject. So I'm just going to put a pin in that for a minute. Because when we get down to what should the church be doing, I, I'm going to deal a little more with multi-ethnic local congregations. Because there's been some good work done towards that. And there's, I think there's been some bad work done towards that uh, within the church. But let, we'll just kind of at a top level say this. We certainly recognize the universal church is multi-ethnic. And if the surrounding community around your church is multi-ethnic, then you should also 
then that, that local church should also seek uh, to be multi-ethnic as well. Number five, identity in Christ surpasses all other identities. Now, this is the biggest problem we have. I talked about critical race theory earlier. This is the biggest problem we have with critical race theory is it, it's not that there's not some decent ideas on the margins of that, but ultimately the idea is that, that people are primarily defined by their race, all right? That, that that is the biggest influence in your life. Whatever your race is, is, is the, the, the largest determining factor of who you are kind of as a person, what your identity is. And the gospel just says no to that. The gospel says it doesn't matter, right? We already saw that in Colossians 3. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For he he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You say, what does this have to do with identity in Christ and racism, um, particularly as it relates to the church? Well, what's he writing about here in Ephesians 2 is this mystery of unity between two groups that never thought they would be unified, Jews and Gentiles. Now, Gentiles probably didn't care about being unified with Jews. They probably didn't think very much about it, right? Jews, on the other hand, thought about it a lot. And, and they were adamant in the first century that they were different, that they were special, and that th- this is why they had a word like Gentile, right? Most cultures don't have a word that means everybody but us, but they did, all right? Because that's, that's the way they viewed people, was, was you Jews and, and Gentiles. And what Paul says, there's this great mystery that happens with the, when the gospel saves people is that it, it joins us together, he says in this passage, into one man, right? That has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So in Christ, we find a new identity in Christians, as Christians, that surpasses everything else. Now, go back to something I said earlier. I said earlier that I felt like in the 80s and 90s, we kind of did a disservice by just trying within the church to make people colorblind. You say, well, isn't that what this does? No. I've said that the identity in Christ surpasses everything else, not replaces everything else. So it becomes your primary means of identification. And by the way, that should be true regardless of if we're talking about race or anything else. You should identify as a Christian over identifying as an American, regardless of your race. And I think that's I think my last one of these I'm going to do when we get into March before Easter is actually deal with this subject of Christian nationalism because it has become a really big issue in the last uh, several years. And I think what a lot of churches have done in, in America right now is we've flopped our identity to think that somehow our American identity comes before our Christian identity. So we run everything through that frame first. And, and we all ought to see, like, that's really wrong, right? It's, it's, no, it's, it's not wrong to identify as an American, but if you're a Christian, you're a Christian first. Like, that is who you are first and foremost. Well, that's the same with, with race. Once, when, we're, when we're saved, I'm not, a, I'm not a, 
we say it like this, and this is a, a generalization, okay? But I would say, I'm not a white Christian. I'm a Christian who is white. And being raised white has influenced me. And if you go back to what we talked about in the first several weeks of this worldview, whatever race someone is raised in, it's going to influence them because there's going to be different things that happen within that uh, ethnic group, even if they're closely tied uh, to one another. There's going to be small little things that, that influence along the way. But our identity in Christ has to become our primary influencer. So it surpasses it. it. It solves ultimately the issue. It doesn't mean the issue is solved. <laughs> but ultimately the issue is solved, should be amongst believers in that we can say we are all one in Christ. That dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And if it can be broken down between Jews and Gentiles, it can be broken down between whites and blacks and browns and whatever race within America. There is no racial tension here like there would have been in a Jew's mind in the first century. It was far greater there. And Paul says, this is broken down, right? So our identity in Christ surpasses all. Number six, minor, this is letter F for me, if you're wondering. <laughs> so I had to go A, B, C, D, E, F, six. All right. <laughs> the eschatological picture of the church, sorry, that's a big word. Um, the end times picture of the church is an all-inclusive ethnic body. Sometimes in my notes, I type words that I know that, I, that maybe everybody has done. The word eschatological means end times. The end time picture of the church is an all-inclusive ethnic body. Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. This is such a great picture. I know I read this on Sunday mornings, probably at least once a quarter, work this into a sermon at least two or three times a year, try to work this into sermon application because I want to continually give us this picture of what we're striving for. And here's what we're striving for. We're striving for the worldwide church of God from every, what does it say? Nation, that's ethnos, right? Tribe, people, and language. All of these, this diverse background coming together and doing the same exact thing. Nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody contributed more than anybody else. Nobody gets a special seat, right? It is, this, is a, this is a incredible picture of equality <laughs> because it is all of us together entirely undeserving worshiping the one who deserves all glory and honor and praise. That's the picture of Revelation 7, right? So the end time picture of the church is this all-inclusive ethnic body. So we then need to recognize, I think first, that these problems that we're having will not always be with us. Sometimes I hear people say that and they'll say things like, you know, race, racism, that's always going to be a problem. Well, until Jesus comes back. They may be right until Jesus comes back. I think we can keep getting better at it, but we need to recognize when Jesus comes back, it's not a problem anymore. He's going to put an end to all those kinds of problems, and racism is one of those problems. And here's what you're going to see, complete and total equality. Standing, clothed in white robes, palm branches in hand, not worshiping ourselves, not exalting our own ideologies, but worshiping God. So this ought to be the focus for us. 
Keep that in, in your mind as you look forward to this is going to be the end result of what, of where, where Christianity is leading. All right, number three, the gospel and issues of race and racism. We have to see that the gospel is for all people. Galatians 3 verse 8 says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel before him to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now this Sunday, we're looking at Jacob encountering God in Genesis 28. Um, the story that's most often referred to as Jacob's ladder, you know, that story. And it's going to be the fifth time that God's going to repeat that very promise. So five times between um, Genesis 12 and Genesis 28, God says, through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And Paul takes that in Galatians 3 and says, God was actually, what does he say? Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So here's what Paul says, that in you shall all the nations be blessed is God communicating the gospel to Abraham. So, in, so integral to the gospel message is that it is for all people, that it is for, and when I say all people, I mean, it is for all the peoples of the world. It is for the nations, that it is the Western civilization whether you think about that as America, European descent, whatever, does not have a corner on Christianity. Christianity is not a Western civilization religion. It didn't start in, in, in the West. Um, its beginnings for the first couple hundred years, its primary influencers were not in the West. I mean, look, some of the greatest theologians from the second and third century were from Africa. They lived in Egypt and they lived in other parts of North, Northern Africa. Um, it, it wasn't until power was centralized in Rome that, that Christianity really kind of begins to take on a Western flair. And it does so much so that eventually East and West split. So while we often think about Christianity being this product of Western civilization, it's, it's not at all. And we need to recognize that, that God is doing great things and moving in great places, in great ways, in a lot of places around the world. Our goal should just be, be a part of that. Number two, under the gospel and, and the issue of race and racism. Racism must always be viewed as sinful and dealt with in a sanctifying manner. We cannot excuse racism. Um, the church, as I went through that first section, I hope, I think what you probably saw is the church like overtly teaching racist things, progressing towards teaching less racist things, but still probably teaching racist things to eventually getting to the place where we just pretend it doesn't exist in the pews and, and pretend, it's not, it, pretend it's not an issue any longer. Um, we must always view it as sinful. 
And we must deal with it as if it is sinful. And how, does, how do Christians deal with racism within, the, within their own body? How did, sorry, how do Christians deal with sin within the body? We do it through the process of sanctification, right? That, that we work with one another to help one another uh, grow in Christ-likeness. We do it personally as well, that we look within ourselves and ask difficult questions about what do I believe and what have I thought and how, how am I capturing those thoughts and redeeming them, right? So Psalm 51 doesn't deal at all with racism, but does deal with somebody caught in their sin. David's confronted in his sin by Nathan um, after uh, sleeping with Bathsheba and having her husband killed. And David writes Psalm 51, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundance, mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. Here's what's probably true of some people sitting in here and some people watching online. I'm just, I know I'm going to be confrontational. If I haven't been confrontational yet, I'm going to be confrontational for the next 30 seconds. So just deal with it. Um, it's probably true, not of everybody, but of some people in here, that when you heard I was going to talk about race, your immediate thought was, do we have to talk about this? Haven't we dealt with this enough? Doesn't our world talk about this enough? Hadn't we, hadn't we repented enough? Hadn't we talked about this? Some of you thought that. And here's the problem with that. Do you think about any other sin in that way? When, when sin comes up in your small group lesson or when I'm preaching and, and, and the Bible is addressing a certain sin, what I hope you would do, what I think the biblical expectation for us to do is to evaluate our lives again and again and to ask this question, God, is there something hiding within me? Is there something about me that is still harboring this sin in my heart? Am I still acting in ways that I shouldn't act? And sometimes the answer is no. But for some reason with this subject, we want to just kind of push it aside and say, oh, we've dealt with that. We've already dealt with that. We don't need to deal with that anymore. We've already dealt with it. We've moved on. We're past it. But have we really? Have we really cried out like David? Cried out, blot out my transgressions, cleanse me from my sin? So the gospel demands, see, the gospel isn't just the good news of Jesus unto justification. It's the good news of Jesus Christ unto salvation. And salvation includes both justification, being legally right with God, and sanctification, being progressively made into the image of Christ. And to progressively made into the image of Christ means we are willing to ask hard questions of each other, of a church, of myself. How am I doing with this? And, and am I, and, you know, and, and here's, here's what we have to recognize. We have to recognize that some forms of racism have existed in the lives of people in our church. And, and we, we need to be open and honest and with one another and to help one another in that process of sanctification because we're probably not there yet. Number four, the church's actions concerning racism. I've got four here. I've got 10 minutes left. I'm going to be done on time. Number one, the church must recognize how it has historically contributed racism if it ever hopes to move forward. I think this is both a worldwide and a localized issue. Um, racism is not an American invention. I said people, you know, people have been dealing with racism for a long, long time. Um, last year, I got to go and visit the L family in Rwanda. 
And one of those days, it, probably the only thing you know about Rwanda when we sent the L family there was genocide, right? Like you saw the movie uh, or you remember when it happened and you, were, you, know, you, you can kind of remember some of that stuff. Um, we went to the um, genocide museum that kind of told the story. It's kind of a progressive story. It was very eye-opening. I didn't know a ton about the Rwandan genocide. Um, and we went there, and it was really, really helpful. And it's, it's told, I mean, you know, one side won, and so it's kind of told a little bit from the side of the people that won. But the core problem there, and both of these ethnic groups, both of the ethnic groups that were involved in Rwanda, we would, we would look at them in America and just say, oh, they're black. They have black skin, right? But they don't see it that way. Those two people groups saw each other very, very differently. And one oppressed the other for a very long time. And eventually that other rose up and it was bloody and ugly. And the root of the genocide in Rwanda was racism. That was the root cause in a country where everyone has the same skin color. So racism has been an issue. Ethnic clashes has been, have been an issue. The issue within America, though, is unique because we've become this melting pot. You know, we, we've become this place where lots of ethnicities have come, more so than in most other places in the world. Most other places in the world are pretty homogenous, right? They're kind of one ethnic group or, or at least racially. Um, here in America, we're not that way at all. And we're, we're, this, we're this melting pot that has a very racist past that has to contend with hundreds of years of slavery and almost a century of Jim Crow, right? You have to be able to contend with those things and recognize they exist. So the church has to see we haven't always done what we want, should have done. And, and that's kind of the, the royal we, we, the, the church Worldwide, the church here in America has not always done what, what we should have done. And recognizing historical mistakes is actually the beginning to the road to recovery. Number two, the church should prioritize reconciliation. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to, you, to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I want to context to this verse really quick. This is about the gospel and it is wholly about us being reconciled to God. That we who don't deserve it, right? That we who were one thing have now been made something new so that we can be made right with God. But then we're given this little line there in 19. He has entrusted us the message of reconciliation. So then the church, those who have been reconciled with God, now is the ones telling others how to be reconciled with God. All right? So this is a passage about gospel reconciliation. But for the church to be able to do that in a world where 
people hate one another. People disagree with one another. People are at, people are, you know, at, in conflict with one another. Then that, the reconciliation, that, that, that uh, ministry of reconciliation, that message of reconciliation that God has given to his church now goes beyond just the gospel. Now, the gospel is always central to it. But part of what we do is break down barriers. Part of what we do as the church is break down walls and seek to, seek to have relationships we haven't had before. It, the, the church, as, as ministers of the gospel, as, as ambassadors of reconciliation, the church has to walk across the street. It has to go meet the people that are different than us. That's, that's what it has to do. And that's not just about race. Because we're in a church, while the majority of people that come to this church are, um, are of Anglo descent, are white, thank God not everyone is. I'm grateful for a multi-ethnic church uh, that is, that is Nanson River. I think we still have some work to do. So I'm not only talking about race here. I think there's, there's a lot of application, at least in this passage, about reconciliation that, that we can extend and say, we've got to be people that are willing to, ex- to reach our hand out first towards people and say, I hear you. I'm listening to you. I want to understand where you're coming from. Why? Not just so I can heal a relationship, but so I can tell you about Jesus. I can bring the gospel to you. So we have to prioritize the idea of reconciliation. Number three, the church should weep with those who weep. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, you, you notice what Paul says? He says weep with those who weep. He, he doesn't say weep with those who weep when you agree with them. He doesn't say weep with those who weep when you understand why they're weeping. He says weep with those who weep. The church is getting better at this. We still got a ways to go. Um, With recognizing people's pain and recognizing when individuals and people groups in our culture are hurting, that sometimes the best thing we can do is just hurt with them. Just just do what's great. And this isn't just your preacher, your pastor with an idea, right? This is what the Bible says. The Bible says weep with those who weep, hurt with those who hurt. And this, this contributes to that reconciliation. That when we see that someone's in pain and we're, real, we're willing to share in that pain with them, it allows us more opportunity um, to tell them about what will really cause full reconciliation. And that is the gospel. Number four. The church should seek to be a reflection of the ethnic makeup of its community. I put a pin in this earlier and I'm coming back to it. There was a movement, late 90s, early 2000s, to, that, that every church plant in evangelical Christianity was like high priority, multi-ethnic. Like that's what it was going to be. And they even tried to do this in some areas that were like not multi-ethnic. They went into suburbs that were still relatively um, uh, segregated. They were majority, if not almost all, white. They went into urban centers that were majority, if not all, uh, African-American. They went, into, um, they went into places, you know, even rural places where, where you know, people were all one thing, just about all one thing or another. 
and made something kind of this big deal and it just didn't, it didn't work. Like you were trying to force something to happen that just wasn't going to happen. So I think we've progressed here. So it's not about forcing multi-ethnicity, but it's about the church, the, the nature of our outreach, our willingness to, to reach our hand out, our willingness to cross the street, our willingness to, to talk to people and get to know people that may be different from us. If, if the church is really doing that, then ultimately we reach people with the gospel and we become a welcoming place for the community. And so then what ultimately happens within the church? The church becomes a reflection of the ethnicity of the surrounding neighborhoods. That, so, it, so an all-white church or an all-black church or an all-Hispanic church or an all-Chinese um, you know, church doesn't bother me. Shouldn't bother us. If that's a true reflection of the community. Now, if it's not a true reflection of the community, then there's work to be done, right? To have a, to have an, and I grew up in this church. Folks, I grew up in a church that transit, that was in an area of Baton Rouge that transitioned. And it was primarily an all-white church. There were a few um, ethnic minorities that came, but it was primarily an all-white church, but everybody was driving to get to it. The church didn't even exist anymore. It just, they, they had no desire really to address it. And it just dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. And, and there were over a thousand people who went to church there on Sunday mornings when I left in the nineties. It does not exist anymore because it was unwilling. It was just unwilling to do the work. It wasn't that they were hateful people. They just were unwilling to kind of do the work. Cause this is hard. I say this in our, I'm going to end here. I know I've gone long at 731. Um, you know, we, we value, one of our values as a, as a church is we value a diverse, multi-generational congregation. Now, diverse means lots of things. Multi-generational is easy. It means we don't want to be a church just for young people, old people, middle-aged people. We want to be a church for all generations. But we just stuck with the word diverse. We could have put a lot of more words in there. But we just stuck with the word diverse for this reason. Because it's not just that we want to be uh, a church of multi-generations or uh, of multi-ethnicities. We want to be a church where, where people of multi, multiple socioeconomic statuses come, people of multiple job backgrounds, blue-collar. We want to be a blue-collar church. We want to be a white-collar church. We want to be both, right? We want to be a rich people church or a poor people church. We want to be both. We don't want to be an educated church or an uneducated church. We want to be both, like, right? And that also includes ethnicity. Our desire, because we live in a highly diverse area. We want to be diverse. We should be, a diver we should be a diverse church. But, and I say this every time I teach Connect class, that's the hardest kind of church to be. The hardest kind of church to be is one that has multiple generations and multiple ethnicities and multiple types of, you know, blue collar, white collar, country folk, city folk, suburban folk. It's hard to be that kind of church. It's really hard to be that kind of church. It's a lot easier to pigeonhole and say, we're going to be this but this little thing over here, only reaching a segment of your community, is not the best representation of Revelation 7. The best representation of Revelation 7 is that we reach out to everybody within our influence and within our sphere that we can. And then we become then a reflection of that demographic in our community. So that's, that should be our desire. And we believe that's one of the things that we value as a church. And we've codified that in our church covenant and in our 
and our core values. So I hope this has been helpful to you. And again, I recognize I go long. I'm going to wrap up in just this last little 20 seconds and I'm going to pray. Um, I hope this was helpful. Even if you were one of those people at the beginning, you're like, oh, do we have to talk about this? Spend some time thinking about it. Let, have good conversations with, with people and be willing. This is the hardest thing for a church. Be willing to look your friend in the eye and say, I don't think you should think like that. I don't think you should talk like that. Because there are still times that we need to do that for one another. Because there are still those things that linger. And there are still ways that people, um, that, that people are affected by that. And, and we need to be a place that's willing to contribute to the sanctification of one another as we continue to try to get better to do better and to be better, longing for the day that God finally makes it all, all of us equal, standing it, recognizing that there was nothing about me or my ethnicity or my nation to ever exalt. Uh, Jesus is the only one to exalt. Let me pray for us. God, would you be exalted in our church, we pray. Would we be a place, God, that all people feel welcome? We recognize not all people will come here, but would they all feel welcome here? Would they all know that this is a church that loves everyone regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of what their background is, their education is, regardless of um, what they've done in their past. Let this be a church that strives for reconciliation, to preach the gospel, recognizing that the gospel changes hearts. The gospel can, the gospel's changed us. Would you continue to help us change? Show us places, God, where some of this still lingers in our own thoughts and minds, we pray. Um, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those that join us online, sorry I kept you five minutes late. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Have a great night.